are live from the Empire of Lies. It's time for the show that brings you the truth in an atmosphere of free speech and open debate. I'm Lee Stranahan, and this is The Backstory. So we arrive at a pivotal day in the Empire of Lies. Would you you say so, Rod? Would you say this is a break point after that speech last night? Oh, yeah, I would uh, would definitely say that, Lee. It it seems like they're going to go even more uh, full-on totalitarian. Right now, now, you know, believe Joe Biden. I believe what he said last night. They're walking it back somewhat today, aren't they? Because they, they're, they're being asked questions like, do you really hate all Republicans? Well, clearly he does, except Liz Cheney. So the rhinos, he's okay with. But don't believe the walk back or believe it in a limited way. I know what he means. When you ask him a question, do you really hate all Republicans? What do you expect Biden to do today? Say, yeah, I didn't expect that. Are you buying into the walk back at all, Rod? Uh, no, that was a, that's pre-planned, Lee. They, you know, they say something to the to the whole nation, and how many how many people really watch uh, the White House press secretary and uh, or Biden's uh, comments? You know, so some people only most people saw what he said last night, not what he said today. Now we have plenty of clips coming up from the speech, but what we couldn't get a clip of is the thing that I found weirdest about the whole thing. And we can't get a clip of it because it's visual. What the hell was going on with the bright red Satan set? And there's no other way to put it. That color choice is odd for TV. First off, red is a hot color. And as Marshall McLuhan said, TV is a cool medium. You, what I'm getting at, without sounding highfalutin, is you don't put colors that bright red, or any color, usually on TV. Have you ever seen anything like that, Rod? In, in movies, yeah, Lee. In movies, yeah. Maybe, you know, uh, animation or something like that. An uh, uh, animation show, some type of cartoon. But in real life, uh, no. I've never seen anything like that. But it, it just fits the Biden administration. In. And then throw in the, the Marines back there on the set. And throw in the way the flag was hung. The way the flag was hung. Did you see that? It was sort of like the Nazis used to... I mean it. I'm, there's no hype here. It's sort of like the Nazis, you sang their flag. Uh, taller, taller than is wide, in a way. They accentuated it. Did you notice that too? Yeah, Lee, and uh, you know, I'm a, I believe in symbolism, and I believe these people believe in symbolism. And uh, I think, you know, they keep going back to Philadelphia, and that's where Biden's uh, campaign was based out of. Uh, and, and I think the symbolism is, that, you know, that's where the Declaration of Independence was signed, and that's where they're going to burn it as well. That's where they want to end the Constitution, where it all started. So if you somehow have not seen the footage, you need to see it, because I think the visual aspect of his speech was as important. I agree. They believe in symbolism, and they're telling us what's going on. Now, you've put together, Rod, a great show for us on a Friday. Our first guest 
in the first hour is the great Scott Ritter. And we're going to talk more about that Ukrainian attack on a nuclear power plant that was seemed unbelievable. But sure enough, Ukraine's admitting it today. Isn't that right, Rod? Yeah, Lee, after all the uh, Western media has said that uh, Russia was doing it and Ukraine themselves said oh, Russia was doing it now, you know, on Friday, they just come out today and say, oh, yeah, you know, there was no Russians involved. It was all us. And we'll also be talking to Scott about the Kursan offensive. And you can't find, you, you know, Ukraine has banned reporting on the Kursan offensive. Have you seen that? Uh, no, I no, I didn't, I didn't see that, Lee, but I did see that uh, they admitted that the U.S. was helping them with this counteroffensive. Now, the Kherson offensive, the fact that Ukraine has banned coverage of it, does that sound like it's going well for them? <laughs> no, not at all. And we'll be talking to the great Scott Ritter about how and why that's going so badly. And then in the second hour, as we get ready to head into the Labor Day weekend, the great Carter Laren talking ideas and also what's you know i have a theory we'll, we'll get to the boom let's do that first what's the name of the show rod you're listening to the best show on the radio the backstory so i was thinking about the principle the principle here is if th- something's going bad keep doing it that's what the west is doing Everything they're doing about Russia, if something's going badly, double down. Keep going with it. For instance, did you see the latest from G7, the G7 group of countries, and what their plan is to disrupt Russia's economy? No, I missed that headline, Lee. Okay, what they're planning, it was, uh, on a lot of the news, is one of the top stories. The G7 has said they're going ahead with their plan to put a price cap on Russian oil. And what will happen in theory is Russia will not profit from oil sales, but Russia's not stupid. So what's going to happen, Rod, when they put a price cap on Russian oil? Russia's not going to sell, right? Oh yeah, and uh, as we saw, uh, um, Nord Stream 1 is shut down again for repairs, uh, and I don't know about you, but I kind of see this as a retaliation. Okay, you want to set a price cap? Well, we're going to shut down the gas for a couple of days and, uh, you know, cause that uh, energy crisis in Europe to get a little worse. And Russia has said, we will not sell to countries under this price cap. And of course, right? Of course, of course they won't sell because they're not stupid. Now, what's interesting is the Western media... When I listen to this on NPR and the CDC, forgive me, the CBC, Canadian Broadcasting, not the Center for Disease Controls, they were saying on the news, but people realize this won't work. And in fact, it's going to backfire because Russia is not going to stop selling oil. It's obvious what they're going to do. They're going to sell to China and India and other people will deal with things on their terms, which are fair. They're not unfair terms. Otherwise, they wouldn't have customers. So they know, the G7 knows, that this is not going to work. It's not going to hurt Russia at all. In fact, what it's going to do 
is raise the profitability of oil. It's going to help Russia. And they know it's not going to work. But what they announced today is we're going ahead with it. And a good question to ask is why? If I were reporting the audience, all you have to do is say, explain your your thinking. You know this isn't going to work. Now, the military equivalent of that is the croissant offensive. And we'll talk to Scott about the whys and wherefores of the military details. But I want to point out that the rumors are that this was Zelensky's idea, that Zeluzhny, his military leader, did not want to do it. But he gave in to Zelensky. And it's been a disaster in terms of, you know, I'll put it like this. Russia has air superiority and artillery, right? So you don't send soldiers walking in a field behind a tank, an open field, against a foe that has artillery and air superiority. Because I'm no military expert, but does that seem like a bad plan, Rod? Let's let's put a bunch of troops in, and they'll be marching behind tanks. Yeah, that's, you know, that's— you know, centuries of the past, you might want to do something like that, but, you know, not in modern day times and especially against the military might like Russia, you know, I would say that'd be pretty stupid. And so what's happened is thousands of Ukrainian troops have been killed because it was inevitable. And there's rumor. Have you heard the rumors of a military coup in Ukraine? Yeah, Lee, I keep hearing, I keep reading and seeing negative press about Zelensky. Um, I don't know if you've seen, or I'm pretty sure you have seen that um, he's rented out his uh, Italian villa to uh, some Russians. So that's come out. Um, so yeah, he's, 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 uh, I don't think he's going to last too much longer. No, and, and it, it, it seems inevitable to me because the other thing that's going to happen is when the support of the West stops, and it's going to, because this nuclear power plant attack, I think a lot of people in the West are going to go, what were you thinking? Maybe not UK, which was behind, apparently, or it seems like they support it. But when the support of the West, did you see that Biden's giving more? He's got another spending proposal, and there's millions more going to Ukraine. Billions, billions. Billions, yeah. The problem is, once the money runs out, the Ukraine economy is kaput. So when you have a breakdown of both the military and the economy, that means it's time for a military coup. And Zeluzhny didn't want that curse on offensive because he knew it was not going to work, it was going to fail, and it was going to result in a loss of troops. But Zelensky didn't care because Bojo wanted it. So once they get to a point where the money stops flowing, the economy is in trouble. And the nuclear power plant attack was after Russia had said they were going to shut down the plant, uh, disconnect it from the Ukrainian grid. So Ukraine itself. You know, we're talking about a harsh winter in Europe. 
Well, Ukraine's about to get that own harsh winter because energy is going to be cut to Ukraine. And that's going to be disastrous for the people of Ukraine. But as I'll point out, study history. When you look into what happened after the Medan coup in 2014 and 2015, people were freezing to death in Kiev. Backing by the West has never helped the people of Ukraine, ever. And let me point out, when we talk about the Donbass being shelled, those were, when the Donbass started to be attacked by Ukraine, Donbass, aren't those Ukrainians in Donbass, Rod? Exactly, Lee, exactly. So in other words, I want to point out that the Ukraine started attacking its own people. So anybody who's out there saying you love the Ukrainian people or you want to support them, you might not support the government. Well, you should have said something in 2015 or any time before the special military operation, because obviously when they're attacking their own people, after there's already been economic disaster uh, wrought on them because of the, the Maidan coup, you don't support Ukrainians. So what I'll note is, I've said before, the thing about operating under an illusion is you can do it for some period of time, but eventually time's up. And I think time is close up. Now we'll see, because I always say, whenever there's, whenever there's somebody, a prediction of someone's death, it often takes longer, you know? So the prediction of Zelensky being out, I've been saying that for a while, but that eventually he'll be out. I'm not saying it's going to happen over the Labor Day weekend, but it seems like when he's losing, it seems like he's actively losing the support of his military, very actively. And he's got two military disasters on his hands right now. The Kurdistan offensive is a disaster. By, that's not Russian propaganda. The Ukrainians don't report on it. So they know it's a disaster. That, and then this attack on the nuclear power plant is a double disaster because it's not helping them militarily. It's embarrassing. I guess triple disaster. And it's going to cut energy to the Ukrainian people. So the best thing for the Ukrainian people would be Zelensky being out of there. And the best thing, actually, this is going to work out well for the Russian-held parts of Ukraine. Those people will do fine. Because you've seen in Mariupol, Russia's rebuilding. Right, Rod? That's correct, Lee. I've seen that. I've seen many video, much video of that. And so I, I feel bad for—not exactly bad, but I feel bad for the people on Twitter who buy into the Ukraine talking points. And they never— you have no excuse at this point. I have no patience for pro-Ukrainian people because, or people who repeat stuff like the Nazi things, Russian propaganda. There's no excuse for your ignorance anymore. 
And I'll tell you what else Russia did today. The MFA, the the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, did you see their statement about the scripples? It's on Twitter. No, I didn't see that. I didn't see that one as of, as of now. I'm, I'm going to check it out, though. No, the MFA, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Russia, made a statement. They said, our citizens, Yulia Skripal and Sergei Skripal, have not been heard from in, six. I think it's 1,638, I think it is, days. And we've heard nothing about the Skripals. And the British have them, and they've been vanished. I heard something today talking about North Korea could face war crimes charges for disappearing people. What did the British do with the Skripals if it's not disappearing people? Where is Julius Skripple? Is Julius Skripple okay? We don't know. She's disappeared. Do you think that's fair to say they're disappearing using it as a verb? People and, and Skripples are prime example? 100%. I mean, no, nobody can even uh, describe what happened in that case. The, the uh, established media, they dance around that story. And one thing about that, I would say that Russia has been patient to the point of it being negative. I think they should have been more aggressive, personally. I think they should have been more aggressive about asking about the scripples, but they weren't. And let me point out, and I'll, I'll tell you one other thing about Russian patience. Uh, Scott Drazen, who does a lot of good reports in the Drazen Report, he tweeted something last night that I thought was a good point. Some people think Russia is being patient and maybe too patient by not attacking the command centers in Kiev and so on. Have you heard that? We've talked to Mark Sabot about that. But have you heard some Russians and Americans think that Russia has been too patient by not attacking those command centers in Kiev? Yeah, I have heard that, Lee. A lot of, a lot of people uh, have been alleging that uh, Russia would take over Kiev. Or some, and like you said, some people want them to take out these command centers, but um, they've been holding them back. And... Um, like I've been saying, they're very tactical. So I don't know when they're going to, you know, uh, take out these command centers, if at all, ever. Well, Drazen had a good point last night. The one reason they may not have attacked those command centers is that they have a lot of people inside who are supplying them with info. Because this attack by the Ukrainians on the nuclear power plant, the Russians knew all about it. So how do you think they knew about it? And he makes a good point. You don't bomb a place that he, you, you're getting intel from. So I, I, you, I don't know what's going on, obviously. But that sounds plausible to me. What do you think? No, you think? I, agree, I, I agree with you, Lee. That's why I said if they would even, if ever, if they would even attack it. Because I don't, you know, military stuff is very complicated. So that, you know, what you just said makes total sense. That's why... That statement, well, are they ever going to attack it or are they just going to leave it alone? And that makes sense. They're probably getting so much intel from it. It's, you know, it's, it's a layup. Let's use basketball terms. This is there's It's kind of a military layup to just keep uh, intercepting intelligence. Right. Exactly right. Because they knew about the nuclear power plant attack that 
we, we talked about yesterday and we're going to keep talking about. I still have not seen one single mainstream media report from the West about that. Have you seen any reports, Rod? No, not since they, this this weekend that just passed where they were saying uh, Russia was the one uh, uh, attacking it. Um, and then, you know, it, funny enough, I think I saw it was, it was the AP, I believe, they put it out there. And then within two days, I saw on Telegram the uh, the footage of the uh, the guys, the, the Ukrainians were arrested by the Russian forces and, you know, with the rockets and the uh, infrastructure plans. So that that would uh, kind of add to why they don't want to touch. They don't want to touch what's going on at this nuclear plant. So. We use a phrase that Vladimir Putin used a few weeks ago on the show, the empire of lies. We say that we're live from the empire of lies. I'm going to say that is the empire of lies and self-delusion. And I think we're seeing the effects of that self-delusion. One effect has been thousands of Ukrainian troops. And this is what could—and the troops aren't stupid— you know, they know they're being put into certain death. And we'll talk to Scott about that. But also, the question of the day for you to call in about is what's the worst thing that Ukraine has done since the start of military operation? Now, think about that, Rod. And what's your answer? What's the worst thing that the Ukrainians have done, in your opinion? Um, besides using these schools and hospitals and these apartments where uh, you have elderly people living as uh, as shields, and then if you couple that with the uh, the f- false rape allegations, uh, that's the my takeaway. Because you know, if you, when you see video, and you know we, we hear, you know, this is radio, so you can't really see it, but you when you hear uh, reports from Sanja or uh, John Mark Dugan, um, you know, there's a lot of children that are being involved with this and a lot of elderly people and that's two vulnerable populations and you know i can't imagine going through things like that no and that's a good one and what you mentioned that's a good example i personally think it might be the kill list the peacekeeper list because it's aimed at civilians and it's resulted in the death already of daria dugan dugina the the peacekeeper list the fact that the u.s and Great Britain are backing that list of civilians to kill, and many journalists are on it, right? If they can't suppress the truth, they'll kill it. They'll bomb it, or they'll shoot them, or whatever. And the Ukrainians mean it, because they've already killed a bunch of Ukrainian politicians, and they've already banned all their political parties. And so for Joe Biden to do a speech about democracy— when he backs Ukraine is a sick joke. And I'm gonna point out that it's a sick joke that's underlined by everything that Ukraine has done, banning opposition political parties and so on. So let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll get some details with the great Scott Ritter talking about the military disaster for Ukraine as it's sizing up. And we'll talk about it here on The Backstory. And we're back on The Backstory. 
and we are on 105.5 FM AM 1390 in Washington, D.C. We're very proud to be joined now by a great friend of the show, someone we've had on all throughout this special military operation, bringing you the truth, Scott Ritter. Hey, Scott, how are you doing? I'm doing great, thanks. How are you? I'm okay. So uh, we're talking a little bit about the disaster that's going on. I'd like to start by talking about Kherson, because as I understand it, Ukraine is banning media from talking about Kherson now, which tells me how well it's going from a Ukrainian side. They're not even pretending it's succeeding. So what's happening? What was the what was the goal, as you see it, of the Ukraine's Kherson operation? And are they achieving it? Well, the short answer is they're not achieving any goal other than sacrificing um, reserves, precious reserves that had taken months to assemble, train, equip. Um, you know, the, the, the Ukrainians all summer long have been throwing in poorly trained territorial uh, defense units into the front lines in the, in the Donbass region uh, so that they could withdraw uh, better trained, more experienced troops, uh, send them off to France, to England, to Poland, to Germany, to receive specialized training in new equipment and then bring them back, uh, coalesce them as a unit, uh, get them underneath competent leadership. Uh, and they had you know, around six brigades worth of um, very, very professional, um, you know, solid troops. Uh, these reserves would have been extraordinarily useful in blunting uh, the Russian um, advance. Uh, I bring up... Uh, the Marine Corps experienced during the Korean War, the Pusan perimeter, uh, when the North Koreans were pressing in from all sides, and the 1st Marine Brigade was used as a fire brigade. Every time there was a penetration by the North Koreans, they sent in the Marines. They blunted the attack, pushed it back, then pulled back, hit the next one, hit the next one, hit the next one, ultimately exhausting the North Koreans. So if I were a, a Ukrainian general, I would have taken these six brigades and held them back on the front. And then if the Russians achieved a breakthrough, you come in and you launch a punishing counterattack. Boom, punch them in the nose, push them back a few kilometers, and then withdraw, regroup. Um, and you could make life a living hell for the Russians. Uh, but that's not what they did. Instead, they took these units and they threw them into a poorly planned, poorly conceived uh, so-called grand counterattack in Kherson, which was apparently purely a political show. Why do I say that? Because you don't take an assault formation. Uh, be, you know, in the military, I can achieve, if I have competent leadership, I can achieve localized superiority anytime I want on a battlefield. So it's not unusual for military to be able to assemble forces in a specific location at a specific time and carry out a successful attack. And that's what the Ukrainians did. Uh, they launched six attacks. Two of them actually penetrated the Russian defenses. One penetrated the defenses in depth. What I mean is up to five kilometers, which is what you expect from a reinforced battalion-sized assault force. But once you achieve that breach, that initial penetration, you have to reinforce. You have to throw troops in behind. 
You have to exploit. You have to keep the enemy off balance. You don't stop because you don't have any reinforcements. The Ukrainians carried out this attack. They got slaughtered in the process. 1,700 guys killed in the initial assault. Um, they got the two uh, breaches. Then they failed to exploit. They, the, the troops that did come up got slaughtered by artillery, slaughtered by air. The troops that achieved the, the breach were isolated, cut off, and annihilated. The Ukrainians have lost everything. They've lost all their reserves. One of their best brigades, the 128th Mountain Assault Brigade, uh, with a long history that goes back to the Second World War, it's from the Transcarpathian region. There is now a regional day of mourning because the entire brigade was slaughtered. And they're all local guys. That's like getting a National Guard unit from, you know, whatever state you're in. Um, and, you know, all the, all the local boys are in there, all the, you know, hometown heroes, and they're all dead now. That's what happened. And it happened to all, everybody who was involved in this assault. Uh, it was done politically. It was done by Zelensky uh, to be seen as taking the offensive, to be seen as doing something. Um, and it might have been related to the, this the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant thing, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a bit, uh, as sort of a supporting attack from that to draw away Russian resources to create the impression of uh, Ukrainian capability. Um, I don't think Ukrainians anticipated that this defeat would be this quick, this swift, and this decisive. The Russians are pretty damn good, and they just proved it. Now, Scott, you have military experience, but have you ever hosted a sitcom on Netflix? That's my question, because that's apparently what you need to be in charge in Ukraine. And, and the point I'm getting at is military guys like you— there's no way uh, there's no way the military respects Zelensky, is there? And after this, what is the military thinking? Well, a, a couple things on this. One, we there's every reason to believe that there's uh, extreme tension between the Ukrainian military and the office of the president, Zelensky, and his minister of defense. But with all due respect to the minister of defense. You know those six brigades that they just brought together, the reserves that they trained, equipped? That wouldn't have happened without Zelensky. Okay, Zelensky is a symbol that's been created by the West um, that attracts billions of dollars of assistance. If the Ukrainian Minister of Defense was trying to rally international support, uh, it just wouldn't come. So it's a double—Zelensky is a double-edged sword. On the one hand, you get all sorts of assistance because of him. On the other hand, you have to tolerate this interference. And the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense has been balancing it out. And prior to this Kherson counteroffensive, uh, had made the decision that they're getting more out of Zelensky than they're losing. And so they're going to tolerate his continued existence and interference because without him, you don't get the military assistance. But after the Kherson offensive, when you know, and the other thing I have to say is that this offensive was planned uh, by the Ukrainian military with the United States. This this shows this is why the Russian deputy foreign minister came out and said, you know, the United States is walking a razor thin edge between being a an observer and an active participant in this conflict. Um, the the Russians know how the role played by the United States in planning this offensive and providing the not only material support, but the intelligence support, the logistics support, 
and the command and control support. So this was an offensive that uh, the United States had a direct hand in. They they had wanted a, 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 a less expansive offensive. Zelensky chose to go bigger rather than smaller, and they're paying the price. But it, it's not as though the Ukrainian military didn't want to carry out a counterattack. They did. But um, they I don't know if the timing was what they were looking for, and I don't know if the scope and scale was what they were looking for. So, you know, once again, Zelensky stepped in, and the end result is thousands of dead Ukrainian soldiers. I, and the number is going to even go up high. This is literally the worst defeat the Ukrainian military suffered uh, since the fall of Mariupol, when they you know, lost thousands of dead, thousands of captured. Um, the, the, the scope and scale of this defeat has yet to be calculated. They had held in reserve some of their best tanks, upgraded T-80 tanks with good optics, good everything. Those tanks are gone. Those tanks have been wiped out, destroyed. Um, they lost a lot of artillery, they, and they lost a lot of people. Uh, highly trained people. This was the best of the best. These are the guys they held back. These are the guys that they got special training for. They're all dead. They're all dead. There's nothing left. So, yeah, uh, I don't think Ukraine... And also a bunch of those tanks that they were just given by, by Poland, right? Those tanks recently came in, and they've lost a lot of them, right? Yeah, no, the, the Polish tanks are uh, now... Uh, you know, charged scraps of metal. Uh, so you know they, they've lost they've lost a lot of very precious equipment. This is why you're going to see in the near future, uh, Zelensky screaming. This is why he's telling the Germans, "I need your uh, your Leopard three tanks." And he's even starting to go to the Americans, saying, "I need your M1 tanks because he doesn't have any tanks anymore. <laughs> They're all gone." Way to go, Zelensky. Now let me ask you to make some conjecture because obviously you. Don't know, although you might have some sources. What do you think the thinking inside the U.S. Pentagon is about this? In other words, not that they're going to come out and say it, but what do you think the people in the Pentagon think about what Zelensky's done, the U.S. military people? You know, the U.S. military, you know, they've, they've given—forget the propaganda that's being spun out here through, you know— the, the, the compliant messengers like William Arkin at Newsweek and others uh, that, you know, just propagate myth after myth about the invincibility of the Ukrainian military. Uh, no military professional believes this. And we believe Mark Hartling and all the other, you know, Dave Petraeus, all these other former generals who are, you know, CNN and MSNBC paid shills. They, they, they don't even believe what they're saying. They're just getting paid to say it. Any military professional knows Ukraine cannot win this war. Uh, there's not a military professional alive who, when push comes to shove, um, will you know will say, "Oh no, no, I think Ukraine's going to win this war." They they know they're not going to win. The purpose right now is to make this war as painful for Russia as possible. And the United States and NATO spent a lot of time and effort to work with the Ukrainians to build up these reserves. Um, you know this this is like. You know, you want to go to Vegas, so you you know you save ten cans and you cash them in every week for twenty, forty bucks at a time. You get loose change, you get fifty bucks here. You know, you throw every dollar bills in. I'm giving away my secret here. And uh, next thing you know, you got you know five hundred bucks 
and you can go to Vegas now guilt-free because this is like 500 free money. And you go in, you put it all on red, and it hits black, and you're done. You spent months building up something, and it's gone in an instant. Um, that's what happened here. And so the U.S. has to be sitting back going, you know, here we go again. Now, the, the, the frustrating thing, if I were the Ukrainians, is the United States is going to do it. They don't care. These aren't American lives. These are Ukrainian lives. And here's the, 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 the sickening reality of the American approach here. We don't care if Ukrainians are dying. We literally don't. We're going to now tell the Ukrainians to hold fast. Biden just signed off on another multi-billion dollar you know, military assistance package, and the Brits are going to open up their training facilities, and everybody's going to bring you whatever Ukrainians are left out. Uh, you know, there's a lot of Ukrainian men left, uh, which means there's a lot of Ukrainian men that are going to die. And we don't care about this. We are going to work with Ukrainians to extend this conflict as long as possible. You know, the Ukrainians lost thousands of people uh, the last couple of days. The Russians lost hundreds. Okay, that's still a lot. You know, in Vietnam, we were losing, you know, 200 a week, and that was, you know, that added up. Um, the Russians lost more than that uh, in the last couple of days. This was some very heavy fighting, some very serious fighting. And the reports that are coming out, I mean, the heroism of these Russian units uh, cut off. Uh, but rather than retreat and save their lives, they held their position, blunting the Ukrainian uh, offensive, even though they all ended up being killed but they gave their lives to hold the enemy off to buy time for reserves to come in and, uh, you know, and, 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 and halt the, the Ukrainians, uh, the level of heroism. And again, I'm not saying the Ukrainians aren't heroic. Uh, anybody who's ever been on an offensive attack, you know, going into the teeth of, of, of a well-prepared professional defense, uh, it takes gigantic, you know what, and the Ukrainians got that in spades. I'm not denigrating them at all. Uh, but they got slaughtered. I mean, it's just that's just the reality of what happened. But the Russians lost a lot of guys. And so from the American perspective, if we can replicate this, you know, every couple of weeks, if we can, you know, get the Russians to take, you know, hundreds of deaths, we're, we'll sacrifice thousands of Ukrainians. We don't care. That's just the sickening reality of the situation. Ukrainian blood means nothing to us. Nothing. But realistically, can Ukraine do this every couple of weeks? It doesn't seem to me, it seems to me the, the people lost in Ukraine, they're running out of reserves to use. And they, like you say, they really put everything into Kherson. It was like they bet it all on red and it they lost. Scott? Yeah. No, they can't. The thing is, this took them months to prepare these units, months. Um, and now they're gone. Um, the Russians aren't going to sit here and say, okay, you know, we're going to pull back here, hit the pause button, let, let you build up your forces again. Russia is going to keep the relentless pressure, which it has been doing all summer long. Uh, the, the intensity of fighting that's been taking place along the entire uh, length of the, of the front lines is unimaginable to, to the average American. You know, there's not a pause. There, there aren't people sitting in trenches smoking cigarettes doing nothing. The Ukrainians are getting the dog poop pounded out of them every day. And the Russians are just in there grinding, 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 grinding. It's t constant contact, constantly, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And the Russians are just going to keep up this pressure. And at some point in time, the Ukrainians are going to break. Um, and they won't have reserves. 
plug the hole. Now they do have, believe me, there's a second, there's another wave of people being trained. But again, I come back to my analogy about, you know, the cans. Um, if I'm under pressure now to put $500 on red every week, but it takes me four weeks to build up the $500, you can see how bad that's going to happen. And that's what's happening here. Uh, the, 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 the pressure is going to be on the Ukrainians to repeat this exercise, you know, every, you know, every other month, but it takes them four months to build up these troops. Um, so they're going to start taking shortcuts. And that just means that the troops are going to go in with poor training. Uh, they're not going to be familiar with the equipment and they're going to die just, you know, quicker. Uh, and, and then the cycle just speeds up and next, you know, they burn themselves out. Um, this is what happened to the Germans in World War II. You know, they, they fought the Battle of Kursk in uh, uh, Operation Citadel in uh, the, the summer of 1943. They built up all these reserves. They built up this huge tank force. And instead of holding this tank force back as a mobile reserve to blunt the Soviet attacks, they put it all in. They went all in. They put it all on red, and they lost. And from that point on, they were never able to assemble that kind of reserve force again. They, they, they fought well. They, sometimes they won some battles. Uh, sometimes they killed a lot of Soviets, but they never were able to gain the initiative. They were always uh, reacting to the to Soviet pressure until ultimately Battle of Berlin, the war's over. And that's what's going to happen here. The Russians are just going to keep rolling these guys back slowly, pound them, pound them, grind them, grind them. And the Ukrainians are never going to be able to um, to, to to have the initiative. And, you know, and, and look, this 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 Kherson thing, um, it was never going to succeed. I mean, that's the, the thing I don't understand about whoever helped plan this, because the way it was executed, again, it, it was never going to succeed. If, if you want to probe the lines, then you get a, a breach, and then you concentrate all your forces on that breach instantly, instantly, because if you delay, the Russians bring up the artillery, the Russians bring in the aircraft. There's videos that Americans don't want to see. It's some pretty ugly stuff with mass Ukrainian infantry getting hit with um, uh, Soviet aerial bombs. And, um, and, and, and they're in the field, and these giant bombs hit, and they vaporize. And I'm talking hundreds at a time. Boom, boom, boom. Uh, why? Because they took too long to, 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 to follow through. They took too long to exploit. Uh, and, the, and the Russians are professionals. Yeah, okay, you punched a hole in their defensive lines. You think they're just going to sit there and cry? Or do the professionals tell the boys in the front, fight and die where you are, we're coming in. And that's what happened. The boys in the front fought and died, held them off long enough. The reinforcements came in, plugged the gap, and then the artillery comes in. Then the aircraft comes in. And the Ukrainians can't, they can't win that fight. They'll never win that fight. So this was a horrible waste of um, some extraordinarily brave, well-trained, and uh, extremely valuable troops. They're all gone. They're not, they're not coming back. The, the casino's not giving you those chips back. Now, let's talk about, you mentioned the attack on the nuclear power plant. When I first heard about that, it's almost unreal. It's a surreal idea that they sent in a force of 60 people to take the nuclear power plant. What was your reaction when you first heard about that? And what's the update on what we know now? Well, first of all, what we know now is it was uh, 700 people, not 60. Uh, the 60 were simply the one, one, uh, the initial assault wave of uh, troops sent in by 
uh, fast attack boat. They came across the river and they landed and they were supposed to secure a bridgehead. And then these two barges that had hundreds of troops on them were supposed to come in, offload, and they were supposed to seize the nuclear power plant. Um, whether they were supposed to seize it prior to the IAEA being there or while the IAEA was being there is not known. Um, but that was the plan. They also had some helicopter-borne troops that were supposed to come in. And so this was a combined, you know, fast boat attack, you know, amphibious attack, airborne assault with um, artillery support. Um, it was done by 700 troops that apparently were have been, <laughs> spent the last couple months in England being trained by the Special Air Service, the British elite commandos. Um, so this is not something that was spur of the moment. This has been thought out for a while, which, again, given the linkage between the, the, the timing of the attack and the arrival of the inspectors, uh, we now go back in time and understand that when Tony Blinken spoke to the international community on August 1st, first raising the specter of uh, the nuclear shield, Tony Blinken knew there's a commando force being trained in, um, in England. He knew this. And he was starting the process of creating the uh, diplomatic setting for what was about to happen. Because, you, you know, the commanders are being trained, but now you got to get the, the IAEA engaged. So you create this crisis, this notion that the world's going to end. There's going to be a second Chernobyl. It's going to be worse than Fukushima. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. we got to do something. Do something. Do something. Do something. IAEA says, okay, we'll send in a team. And now they're sending in the team. They meet what they were supposed to go in. Zelensky calls them in and holds them up for two days. They're supposed to go in on August 31st. No, the commandos aren't ready. So Zelensky calls them up, delays them while they get the commandos assembled, and then releases them. Um, and then <laughs> when the commandos attack, things are going bad. Uh, the Ukrainians hold up the, the guys. They're like, no, you can't go in. Uh, things are going real bad right now. Uh, the Ukrainians, this was a... This was a just a horrible setup for the international community. I think, I think, you know, when I first heard this, I said, oh, my God, these inspectors are in on it. They're in on it. But apparently they're not. Um, you know, the Russians were smart. They insisted that this team uh, include ballistics experts, um, which aren't normally part of the IAEA's repertoire. But they brought them, and these ballistics experts and their interview specialists talked with the people, looked at the forensic data, and uh, it's 100% certain. Now, not even the Ukrainians now have given up saying the Russians did that. They said, no, no, we, were, we did it the whole time. Because they have the proof. The proof is Ukraine was attacking this facility. The other thing that the inspectors found, and it didn't take them long to do this, they said this site is being professionally managed. I mean, these are top-notch people here. These things, the safety systems are in. I mean, if people just stopped shelling the place, everything would be okay. Um, and they've left six inspectors behind. Um, as, as sort of a, 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 a an insurance policy against further shelling, because now the Ukrainians will be shelling the international organization. It's going to be interesting to see how the world turns on this, because this is humiliating, not just for Ukraine, because Ukraine's shown to be a liar of the. I mean, this is this is lies of the of the worst type, betraying the United Nations. Where's the Secretary General condemning this? Where's the IAEA? condemning this. They can't because they are prisoners to the British, the Americans, the French, all of whom who knew this was going on, all of whom played this game. It's going to be interesting to see how this is spun going forward. But the bottom line is the Russians did okay. Uh, what, 
what, it, what apparently happened is the Russians knew this was going to happen. They have good intelligence. Uh, the Ukrainians are furious because the this attack was something that was very closely held. Only a few people in the office of the presidency and uh, the Ministry of Defense knew about this. These these were 700 special forces who had been taken out of the picture uh, in this in this type of stuff. They call it put into isolation, which means nobody knows where they're at, knows anything about them. They disappeared, only to reappear during the day of the attack. Um, and yet the Russians knew about this. They knew exactly where they were coming in. The Russians suckered in those 60 guys, then ambushed them with helicopters and troops on the ground. The barges came in, got pounded, sunk. Um, along the riverside right now, there's hundreds of drowned uh, Ukrainian special forces. Uh, their bodies are floating up on the on the riverside. The ones that made it ashore got gunned down. I mean, the photographs of them, they literally are just they're dying on the beach. Um, they have no. They had no chance. Helicopters shot down. The guys coming out of the helicopters gunned down. Uh, the the Russians slaughtered them uh, because they knew this was coming. So this is a great intelligence victory for the Russians. It's a horrible strategic um, propaganda defeat for the Ukrainians. Except the United States, Great Britain, and France seem to be like, yeah, okay, we're just going to pretend this didn't happen. Well, let's see what the United Nations does because. Uh, the United Nations can't ignore this. They're going to have to come out, and there's going to have to be a condemnation of Ukraine. This could be, uh, it should be, uh, the incident that uh, initiates a global flip on Ukraine. How can you support a government that does this, that lies to the international community, lies to the United Nations, puts United Nations inspectors' lives at risk? They were willing to hold them hostage, put their lives on the line for this stupid political game. Well, how can they do it? Because the United States, Great Britain, and France were along with the ride. Um, this is this is bad stuff. This doesn't make my country look very good. It makes the British look worse than they than they already do. It just makes the French pathetic. Macron, Mr. I believe in diplomacy. How can he ever be trusted after this? He can't. Now, the, the IAEA for inspectors went in. I understand this. One of them is from China. So, he has no loyalty to U.S. or the Western narrative. Can we expect any truth coming from the IAEA, Scott? Yes, the IAEA. Well, first of all, understand the IAEA. The, the inspectors are a technical group, so they're going to write a technical report on the safety and operation of the facility. Uh, the United Nations already said that their job isn't to apportion blame for the the attacks simply to evaluate uh, any attack made on the site as it relates to the security and operation of the facility. So they're going to say, you know, shell hit here, a shell hit here, a shell hit there. Uh, it damaged the electricity here, boom. But the plant is operating safely, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the, if there's going to be a political aspect of this report, uh, it'll either be suppressed by the Board of Governors of the uh, IAEA, which is a very political um, you know, oversight board, the United States dominates this. Uh, so they're not going to let this come out. Um, you know, but the, the wild card here is the direct, the, the secretary general of the, or the director general of the uh, IAEA. Um, he's an Italian. Uh, he was handpicked by the United States and everybody because he, he he's, he was picked because of the Iran uh, issue and that he was going to be hard on Iran. He committed to being hard on Iran, et cetera. And he's done that job. He's He's, he's, he's making life hell for the Iranians. Um, but he's not 
you know, at the end of the day, he's an international civil servant loyal to the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty. And um, he's going to report to the Security Council. And uh, the IAEA has a history of their secretary generals going before the Security Council and telling the hard truth. Mohammed El-Baradai uh, did that in the lead-up to the Gulf War, where he basically told the United States, all of your intelligence was wrong. All your assessments are wrong. There is no Iraqi nuclear program. Don't use this to justify going to war. Um, I, I have a feeling that this guy is going to come for the Security Council. That will be a closed-door session because they don't want truth to be told by the world, uh, to, be, to be told to the world. I think he's going to come in very Zelensky timing of all this, and it's going to be an uncomfortable uh, report. Uh, then he'll lose his job, and they'll bring somebody else in. But at least he'll have a moment of, um, uh, uh, you know, where he is recognized by the world for being a truth teller. Now, Scott, we only have a couple minutes left, but we know that the CIA was involved in Ukraine. Of course, the CIA has an eight-year history and eight-decade history with Ukraine. But what I'm asking you is, what is when we say the U.S., what is the opinion of the military people of the CIA generally? When the CIA is involved in operations, is there, I'm not talking about the generals, but the rank-and-file people, what do they think of the CIA at the Pentagon, Scott Ritter? Well, I mean, you know, the, first of all, most military people don't refer to the CIA as the CIA. It's referred to as OGA, other government activity. Um, you know, and, and, and if you're the average Joe on the street, there's a mystique about it. Oh, my God, the CIA, the, you know, the spooks, they, you know, they're bigger than life. If you're special operations, you know them as, uh, as you know, the, as the paramilitary arm. Um, and you know that they're pretty good because most of the paramilitary arm comes from the uh, Joint Special Operations community. But you also know that uh, they're not there to um, do the bidding of the military. They're there to do the bidding of the CIA. And the CIA, um, you know, the, the Pentagon doesn't trust the CIA. And, Scott, we'll have to end it there. We're out of time. But a fantastic appearance, as usual. It's always great to have you on and setting records straight on what's going on in Ukraine. Thanks so much for appearing with us on The Backstory. Scott Ritter. Let's take a short break, and we'll be back with more, including excerpts from last night's speech by Fuhrer Biden. You're back for the second hour of the show that brings you the truth behind the news. This is the backstory. And it's always great to have Scott Ritter on. And he really does set the record straight. What's your, what's your takeaway from talking to Scott, Rod? What did you think? Oh, it was uh, very interesting learning that it was 700, not 60, which is a, a huge yes. difference. It's a, that's a massive difference. Yes. And it makes sense that that was the first wave. And he explained it very well. It's always great to have Scott on because you can tell he cares about the troops. He cares about the Ukrainian troops, even. Does that make sense? 
Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, a lot of these people were uh, drafted involuntarily, so yeah. Yes, and as a military guy, he understands what it's like to be on the ground. So thanks again to Scott Ritter for another great appearance. Coming up this hour is our friend uh, from Unsafe Space, the podcast. And we're going to be joined later in the hour by the great Carter Laren. Yeah, I was just trying, forgive me, Command Central. I was trying to get the graphic. And so I would say it as I put a picture on. Well, I, I was a little too ambitious there. But Carl Aaron's joining us at the end of the hour. And we're taking your calls. 202-521-1320. This is Backstory. See, if, if you're not watching on one of the video platforms, you can't see. I occasionally put slightly fancy graphics up. And... Sinking everything, you know, it's tricky. By the way, let's see Fetterman, the guy from Pennsylvania. Let's see him switch graphics while he's talking. Do you think he could do that, Rod? <laughs> uh, no, I don't think he could do that, Lee. He, and he's under fire right now for uh, defending his statements that uh, people of color uh, don't have access to get IDs. So, you know, you shouldn't ask them for ID for voting. And he backed, you know, he, he doubled down on what he said. The thing about Fetterman running against Dr. Oz for governor in Pennsylvania, I didn't know you could run for governor in a hoodie. So it makes me hopeful. You know, if I were running for a political office, like to head the state, I would dress better. Am, am I wrong in thinking that that would be more respectful of the citizens? I, I, you know, I, I own ties. I just don't like dressing that way. And apparently needed a seat. But I never knew you could run in a hoodie. He looks like a guy who'd be playing pickup basketball at the park. Right? Yeah, that's that's what he's going for, Lee. Because uh, if you know the truth, he's a, uh, he's a he's a he's a rich kid. He grew up a rich kid and not only a rich kid, but up until 49 his parents were giving him an allowance of $50,000 a year and he never had a real job. So his, his job is, is seeming like a regular person. Now, how do I get that kind of deal? Because I'm sure many people like the idea of it's, it sounds like an Andrew Yang policy. You know, your parents give you 50 grand a year in, how do I get that Rod? Where, where did I sign up? You got you to sign up for the time machine, you know, or maybe CERN, you know, the CERN machine will take you back to time and uh, you can uh, pick your rich parents out. But I don't like him being attacked as someone who's obviously had several strokes. Uh, I don't like the fact that, did you see the statement that Dr. Oz's campaign manager had made about perhaps if he ate a vegetable? Did you see that? That's a controversial one. Did you see that? Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, I did see that. Yeah. Well, let me say something, and I, I'm not going to get deep into this, but listen, campaign manager, the key to not having a stroke is not necessarily eating vegetables, because you you know about the ketogenic diet, right? The ketogenic diet, which is focused on protein and meat, uh, lowers diabetes, and diabetes and high blood pressure. Are a uh, a risk for a stroke. So 
It could have been that if he'd not eaten so many vegetables, he would have been better off. Does that make any sense at all, Rod? Right, exactly. So it was possibly bad medical advice, among other things. But I'm, I'm offended by her saying that. Shut up about his stroke. The only thing I say is we wish him well. That's the only thing I say. If he's incapable of doing a job, that will come out. You don't have to bolster it. But what I don't like about the Dr. Oz campaign, are you seeing people on Twitter, Republicans, who chime in on attacking Fetterman? The last thing I would attack Fetterman for, I'm not a Fetterman fan, but the last thing I'd attack him for, as Tom Nichols said last week, is his stroke. And are you seeing people on Twitter, Republicans, who are jumping in with stroke jokes about Fetterman too? Yeah, I, I have. I've been seeing that for a while. You know, the the thing about his stroke was that he had these uh, back-to-back strokes. They denied it, and he they pretty much you know uh, did a Joe Biden and uh, just hit him hit him for the rest of that uh, campaign. That I mean, he was already going to win anyway. So that's that's a thing. But um, you know, people making fun of it is like you know. You know, even though he's not a likable guy, you know, you shouldn't be making fun of him at a stroke. I mean, if you want to question, like you said, if you want to question, is he going to be able to do his job? And to go along with that, you know, they asked him, are you going to debate Dr. Oz? And he's like, no, he's like, I'm not going to debate Dr. Oz. And what a sad question. So that just feeds into the, well, could you even, you know, the people who suspect that this stroke has had a major impact on him. It's like, well, why don't you want to do a public debate? You know what I mean? But the uncalled for shots, like, come on, even if you don't like the guy, like, Shouldn't be calling for, you know, stroke jokes. It's not classy. I don't know how else to put it. It shows a lack of class. And it's off-putting to a lot of people because they're like, don't you have something better? And so many people have experienced maybe their brother or their mother or their father has stroke. And they know strokes are unpredictable. I mean, that's what my doctors have said. They've said, we have no way of predicting you could have another one tomorrow and it could kill you. And everyone knows I got the same advice that everyone got. It's unpredictable and the next one could kill you. So don't talk about it. But it's why Dr. Oz was a dumb choice. You know, a lot of people didn't want Dr. Oz to win, but Trump backed him. And it also brings up the lie because it is a lie that Trump had made fun of a reporter. And you you know, that you've seen the footage of Trump acting spazzy. And the fact is, the reporter he was talking about never talked that way. So Trump wasn't making fun of him. But it brings up the specter of that and makes Republicans seem like mean people, right? Yeah, yeah, this, like I said, with the, with the Fetterman thing, you can, you know, you can question his ability to hold office after these strokes, but you know, I'm not making fun of his joke. Like, you know, Hey, you had a stroke and I don't even know what a stroke joke, like, you know what I mean? That's not even in my repertoire. So, but I do see it on uh, Twitter. Um, so yeah, I, I agree with that. And yeah, and that whole, that whole Trump thing, I mean, they played it so much, so longly and they don't, they don't talk about it anymore that, you know, it'd be so hard for you to, to, uh, fight off that, uh, that narrative. Yeah. And so, so, it's a race to watch, but I think Fetterman is going to win. And I think, more importantly, I think Oz is going to lose. I think that is the case. 
It was a winnable seat, but not by Oz and not with the team he's got. He should have immediately fired that comms person who made that joke. Immediately. Just said, I'm offended by that. But Fetterman is milking that, right? Yeah, no, I agree with you, Lee. Uh, Dr. Oz was placed uh, to lose to Fetterman, and Fetterman's so unlikable. So it's like, you know, pick your pick your uh, biggest loser. You know what I mean? Who Fetterman's not liked, um, I can tell you that. Maybe in the Pittsburgh area, maybe a little bit, but I don't, you know, just because just he is a Democrat, that's his only likability, really. Now, let's go to calls. 202-521-1320. Our friend Tarif is on the line. Hey, Tarif, thanks for holding. What's on your mind? Thank y'all for um, taking my call. First, I'd like to free drawing and signs. First, I mean, first, um, yeah, free drawing and signs. Excuse me. Um, I, I told the Fort Lines radio today about what Dr. Uh, excuse me, uh, Moore said yesterday about what was going on, how they was going to try to make the Republicans fight. And um, so I want to add something to that. This would the Trump ministry, this would Trump the mega movement GOP need to do. First of all, they can't be suckers and let them push the G. You can't let the um, DNC push them to fight each other behind DeSantos and Trump and splitting up the party like that because that would they would just be straight up fools for letting that happen. They, and they can't sit on their hand. So the next two years, because Trump will get indicted, right? For the next two years, they have to declare a political war on the Democrats on the D state. They just can't sit on their hands and do anything. So that means, like with my case, they need to look into my case and other whistleblowers' cases. They need to look at freeing, freeing Julian signs by changing the Espionage Acts and do other things. And you never know. But looking into the VA, Mikey DeBakey, contaminated water um, thing in Houston, in my case, they might find other things besides contaminated water. You never know. Maybe some dog pork type of slash ran experimentation was going on on people in these hospitals. You never know. I'm, I'm talking about um, how, I'm talking about figuratively speaking. Well, you never know. You might have people been chipped against the world, causing them to go crazy. So that's a case right there that they could they can take up in other things dealing with sper- illegal experimentation, which I know I'm stretching it right now. But things of that nature, and also. Just go taking taking in the walk to them because if, if you want to go down least fighting a good fight, well, if they're gonna take it, if, they, if they're gonna keep this over Trump hate for the next two years to November the third or November the eighth, whatever whenever the election is, they gotta make sure they fight them every single day, come up with new things, improve to basically. If you're going to cause the, the GOP to fracture, you need to cause the DNC to fracture, too. Well, you have progressives leaving the party, so you have many party stars showing up on both sides. So if you do fracture my party, I fracture your party. That's the type of attitude they need to have. They have to go for all for broke against them, just like they're coming after them. You see what I'm saying? So you just can't just well, do anything. I, I do, although it's a good point. I think the thing— that the Democrats could end up doing. I don't like your opinion on this, Rod. The thing that the DNC could do is if they end up indicting Trump, they unify the Republicans. Because if they make it so Trump can't run, logically, the man is DeSantis, and it's not a fight. I think the 
number one thing that Democrats could do to unify Republicans is indict Trump. And it's pretty clear to me that they plan to. But it could be a disaster for the Democrats. Rod, what do you think about what I said? Yeah, I could I could see that, Lee. Uh, you know, when when the raid happened, we saw a lot of uh, a good amount of Republicans, even some that you know uh, didn't really uh, align themselves with Trump, kind of call call out the raid and the DOJ, Merrick Garland and Biden. So yeah, I could see if they arrested Trump, I could see that it, it would uh, unintentionally, you know, as the Democrats would think, it would it would split the party. It could unintentionally uh, bring unite people together on a Republican. Yeah, and then obviously. DeSantis is a man, and he gets it without a fight, without a fight against Trump. So he does not fracture a party. But a great call, Tarif, as usual. Thanks for the call. Now let's get to some of those clips. Let's get the first clip from Biden's speech last night for the soul of America. Let's play the first clip. Hit it. In our time, as we build an America that is more prosperous, free, and just, That is the work of my presidency, a mission I believe in with my whole soul. But first, we must be honest with each other and with ourselves. Too much of what's happening in our country today is not normal. Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represent an extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. Now, I want to be very clear, very clear up front. Not every Republican, not even the majority of Republicans are MAGA Republicans. Not every Republican embraces their extreme ideology. I know because I've been able to work with these mainstream Republicans. But there's no question that the Republican Party today is dominated, driven and intimidated by Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans. And that is a threat to this country. These are hard things. But I'm an American president. Not a president of red America, blue America, but of all America. And I believe it's my duty, my duty to love with you, to tell the truth, no matter how difficult, no matter how painful. And here, in my view, is what is true. MAGA Republicans do not respect the Constitution. They do not believe in the rule of law. They do not recognize the will of the people. They refuse to accept the results of a free election. And they're working right now, as I speak, in state after state, to give power to decide elections in America to partisans and cronies, empowering election deniers to undermine democracy itself. MAGA forces are determined to take this country backwards, backwards to an America where there is no right to choose, no right to privacy. No right to contraception, no right to marry who you love. They promote authoritarian leaders and they fan the flames of political violence that are a threat to our personal rights, to the pursuit of justice, to the rule of law, to the very soul of this country. Now, do you think actually Biden should be bringing up an election after the Trump administration? When did the Democrats accept the results the 2016 election. I missed that part. Rod, did you see the Democrats accept the results and go, well, 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 Donald Trump's my president? Was that a, a rallying cry of the Democrats? Uh, yeah, no, Lee. Uh, they only selectively say it 
uh, in present day when they say, well, yeah, you know, uh, well, Donald Trump was the president and, and we accepted the results. But, you know, as you as you bring up that for while he was president and, you know, he, up until last week, they don't still don't uh, acknowledge his presidency was legitimate. And that's what this whole DOJ investigation is still about, that his uh, uh, still some type of, uh, you know, Russian spy or Russian stooge. So, yeah, they never did. And they, you know, in reality, they never will. And and the other thing he brought up is I've missed it. Rod, have you gotten any clips on the Republican plan to ban contraception. I missed that part. No. <laughs> no I haven't heard about that one yet. I, I think what he's doing there is they're admitting finally that some people use contraception, they use, for, forgive me, abortion as a means of contraception after the fact. Is that right? Do you think that? Yeah. Was no, I mean, I don't think that's what he's trying to say, but he's saying it without, you know, without his knowledge of like, damn, this is what I'm saying. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? The, you, people use abortion as a contraceptive. But, yeah, that that would be the only thing that uh, I would say the Republicans, uh, a, a number of them have been come out vocally of saying that they want to uh, end abortion. Some some of them. And you, you heard one Republican want to ban contraception. Any of them? No, no. So he's lying about the Republican agenda, and also saying, ban who you love. That's code for Republicans want to get rid of gay marriage. And Thomas has said, Clarence Thomas has said to himself that he's not in favor of certain things, but that's one Supreme Court justice. I don't think there's any possibility you're going to see gay marriage go back. Do you? No. No, I don't. I don't see that, and I don't see any Republicans coming out and saying that they want to end gay marriage or you know, any of that. You know, so like you said, I mean, there was just so many lies during this whole twenty minute, twenty three minute speech is just endless. Now, yeah, no, exactly right. And let me point out that there are some Republicans who are gay and married. You know, we've had Jim Hoff in the show. Jim Hoff from Gay with Pundit is gay and married. So the idea that Republicans would turn back gay marriage, that's more of a freedom issue because no one dies when you do it. But I, I've appreciated Ted Rawl. Ted Rawl's pro-choice, but he said, let's be honest, abortion is murder. I, I like someone who can have an honest discussion about that. Do you, do you, do you know what I'm getting at, Rod? Yeah, I remember when he said that, and yeah. So, yeah, and he, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't holding back on it. But he still agrees. He still uh, agrees with women's right to choose. You know, that's how they phrase it, uh, to have abortions up to a certain term. And what I see happening as we roll through a number of elections that decide these issues is I'm seeing first trimester abortion. It seems fairly safe. First trimester abortion is not going to be banned, I don't think, nationwide. There's no possibility of that. And rape and incest, a lot of these laws that are restricting abortion in later trimesters also make accommodations for rape and incest. So this is fear-mongering by Joe Biden that's not realistic. It's going to work with some voters, the people who are dressed 
in costumes in Washington, the people who are dressed like a handmade sale, they, they were never going to vote for Trump. And they hate. I also find it interesting that he's he stopped saying ultra MAGA. Have you, you noticed that? He's just MAGA. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they don't say ultra MAGA anymore. Right. And they don't exp- they don't explain what what the extreme agenda is. Then they say no respect for the Constitution. Should Joe Biden be talking about respect for the Constitution? Or do the Democrats show contempt for the Constitution every week? Well, they want to they want to ban guns, take guns away from the they want to take the Second Amendment and abolish it. So uh, that would be one of them right there. They want to rip up that Second Amendment from the Constitution and, and a couple other ones, freedom of speech as well. The first one. Yeah, well, they've already, in fact, actually de facto done that. I would say we're at a point now and it's debatable slightly. But now that we know what the FBI's involvement was with Facebook, is there any way you can say Facebook made a private company decision to ban people's speech and to censor people? I I don't think that's Facebook making a free decision as a company. So the argument that the First Amendment doesn't apply to Facebook because they're a private company, I think fails when you see the extent of the government's involvement with them. What say you, Rod? Yeah, Lee, and just just before the show, uh, I grabbed a clip of uh, the White House press secretary being asked about the uh, Missouri and Louisiana AG uh, investigating Facebook and Twitter, uh, you know, uh, pretty much collusion with the government. And uh, if you play the clip, she's just, you know, no comment. Okay, do, do we have that clip? Okay, let's play that. Hit it. Has the administration helped Twitter and Facebook with talking points about what the administration believes is misinformation or how much coordination is there between the administration um, and social media companies? So I, I, I don't have anything to, to share with you on that. I'm not going to comment on, on that right this time. The, the attorney generals from Missouri and uh, Louisiana said there's a vast censorship enterprise um, across a multitude of federal agencies. Yeah, I'm, I'm just not going to comment at this time. On, on another time. And I would say Republicans who are elected, people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, Rand Paul, Thomas Massey, the ones with guts, need to be more aggressive about this. Biden made clear last night, this is a war from the White House by Democrats on Republicans. And they need to start aggressively going after the Biden administration's violation of the Constitution and the First Amendment in dealing with tech companies. Now, I'm not saying that the tech companies didn't, to some extent, go along willingly with this. But no matter, this was a violation of Americans' First Amendment rights. And the Biden administration, and I'm seeing talk of impeachment, Already, Republicans are saying that if they get elected, they'll impeach Biden. Are you seeing that, Rod? Yeah, no, I've, I've seen that. You know, um, how much they're going to stick to that, uh, that, that I question. Um, but, you know, yeah, I, I've seen it. Okay, so let's take a short break now. And when we come back, we'll be talking to the great Carter Laird about 
the, these free speech issues and more on the backstory. Joining us now is the great Carter Laren from Unsafe Space. Hey, Carter, how are you doing? I'm all right, Lee. How are you? I'm okay. So, you know, I think, as a longtime advocate of liberty, that people who are libertarians used to make the argument, and I was one of them, I admit it. I talked about when 20 years ago people talked about censorship, I pointed out many of the things they were saying was, were censorship were not. They were private companies making this decision to do something. And I said, the First Amendment applies to the government. Do you, do you, do you know the argument by mean Carter? Uh, yes. Uh, I, and I agree with the argument, but there's an asterisk. I, I imagine you're about to say an asterisk, so I'll let you say it. Yeah, that, that's what I'm going to say. I think we've hit the point now. What we know about the government involvement with Facebook, I think moves into the area where it becomes a First Amendment violation and it's government involvement. They've offloaded censorship to other uh, companies. But what, what's your take on that, Carter? Uh, yeah, I think you're correct. And I think, you know, when you when you talk in the abstract about the First Amendment um, and it applying to the government and not companies, that's true. But that's in the context of a free market in which companies are not intertwined with the government in any way. And the government doesn't have um, mob-like control or fascist-like control over, over what companies do. But it's not, you know, this Facebook stuff isn't actually new. I mean, for years, you've had large telecommunications companies uh, play nice with federal agencies, not because they receive a warrant or a judge has issued, they have to turn over information, but because when a large, powerful three-letter agency comes into your office and says, hey, it would be really nice if you would cooperate with us, uh, and if, if they do have a lot of power because the state has gotten so big and out of control, many companies will just befriend them and cooperate. And of course, in, a, in, a, in an ideal situation, in a free market with a government that doesn't have power, these, tele, these telecom companies could tell the government to pound sand, and there's nothing the government could do about it. But when you develop a state that is, by its very nature, threatening because of its size and power, people start to play nice, even without legal requirements to play nice. And I think that blurs the boundaries quite significantly, and I think that's what you saw with Zuckerberg on Rogan. And how much of a factor is it that the government lied? In other words, the government said to Facebook, we have stories about Russian disinformation, when in fact, the government knew for a fact, because the FBI had it, that the Hunter Biden laptop was real. They lied and said it was Russian information when they knew better. How much of a factor is the government lying to companies? Well, I mean, obviously, I think that compounds it, and it's, and it's much worse. But I think even if they weren't lying, the, under, the, the problem that I have you know, with Zuckerberg made some comments during that Rogan interview, which I assume is the one you're referring to, in which he said something to the effect of, 
well, I trust the FBI and their professional law enforcement. And that's a statement that you make if professional law enforcement knocks on your door with a warrant and says, you need to turn over this information. Here's what a judge has ordered. That's a fine statement to make. Well, I trust this agency. A judge did it. We followed the process, so we're going to comply. But that's not a defense for complying with a request. Just because they're professional law enforcement doesn't mean that you need to comply with a request. What you need to comply with is an order. And the thing that scares me is a lot of these tech companies think that uh, supporting the state and the bureaucracy is somehow their duty and is somehow a neutral stance to take. And it's not neutral to support uh, the deep state and support the, the bureaucracy. The neutral thing to do is to hold them to account, which obviously neither journalists nor tech companies have done for a very long time. Now, also, I think that another factor here, and I don't want to sound like I have too much sympathy for them, but because I believe there are the tech companies and Google and Facebook and Twitter have an ideological bias. But I would also say that the government and they know these companies, that the government can charge them with antitrust violations and can shut the, those companies down in a heartbeat. Do you see what I'm saying, Kerr? I think the government actively threatens them. Yeah, I, I don't think the government even needs to actively threaten them. I think, And that's one of the points I was trying to make, where when a government gets so powerful uh, and and so big that merely, merely their request carries with it an implicit threat. Like if Tony Soprano comes to your house, Lee, and he says, hey, you know, I'd really like to borrow your car. He doesn't have to threaten to kill you, break your legs, or hurt your family. It's Tony Soprano. You know that talking to him, like that conversation carries with it an implicit threat. And we are at the point, and I think we've been at this point for a while, in which when a three-letter agency comes to your door and and says they would like a favor from you, there is an implied threat from the government. That's That's just the way it is, because this government has been out of control. And they do. You're right. They have power. If they want to start an antitrust uh, investigation, they can. If they want to start SEC investigations, they can. There's there's more rules than Facebook's lawyers could possibly even understand that are written on the books. There's more laws and regulations uh, than than could be comprehended by the, the employees at Facebook, and they're often ambiguous and leave a lot of uh, up to interpretation. So. A, a, an agency that wants to go after a company absolutely can do whatever they want to go after that company. It has become a we've become a nation of rulers and not rules. And that is very dangerous. And so I agree. I think Zuckerberg's probably just a pragmatist trying to keep his company together and play nice so he doesn't, you know, face antitrust litigation or worse. And again, I don't don't want to give him too much credit that he's a victim or anything like that. But it, it, it is a factor. And I've been saying it for years because people were telling my son Shane in Silicon Valley that they're basically being threatened. And antitrust, they saw what happened to Microsoft in the 80s. And the government is perfectly willing to apply that pressure. And they were making it very clear. And your Tony Soprano analogy is a good one. So turning to... The speech last night. What are your thoughts on Joe Biden's speech last night for the soul of America? Ah, uh, Lee. I mean, I have to be honest. Part of me, part of me thinks that we're just being punked by some almighty being. I mean, the guy, he stands up uh, with the red background with two Marines behind him, waving his fists. It looks like uh, 
Alini Reifenstahl film from from like Nazi Germany. He's got like that kind of aesthetic going on. He campaigned on unity and he basically calls half of the country terrorists and uh, insurrectionists and we're all the problem. It it was I guess I'm not shocked by it, but it it really I, I think it's the true colors of of what this administration and what the left is really all about. They're about control and they are very frustrated. I mean, imagine Lee, can you imagine if, if Trump had that aesthetic and that kind of a speech, but he was talking about Antifa and all the cities that burned uh, a few summers ago and the violence. I mean, it, it would be the, the, the Hitler comparisons would be, would be nonstop. And they show the true colors and the true colors are satanic red. I don't know how else to describe. Is it fair to describe that color as demonic red, Carter? Yeah, I mean, if you've ever, if anyone's ever seen any any listeners have ever seen the movie V for Vendetta, it's the the, the Adam Sutler aesthetic. That's what it is. It you know it reminds me of maybe 1984. And let me put it like this: If this speech were a campaign speech, if Joe Biden were on the campaign trail against Trump, this speech would be just as frightening. But this was not a campaign speech. This is an official White House speech. So how much more frightening is it that this is official U.S. government policy right now? Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's it's quite concerning. And I think that just to peel back, I think what's happening here is um, I think the American population, or at least many people who are Americans, have started to realize that being a patriot or loving America is distinct from and often uh, inimical to caring about Washington and wanting to follow Washington and loving the government and the bureaucracy of Washington. So I think um, for a long time, the the deep state has been able to capitalize on people's love of the country to get compliance. And that's not working anymore. People are realizing, wait a minute, it's the founding fathers and the ideas of this country that I love, not the current administration, not the current deep state. It's it's not even about the Biden administration. I mean, the, the three liberal agencies that we're talking about aren't Biden. You know, Biden didn't appoint everyone at the FBI. I mean, these are these are people who've been their entire careers there. So I think people are starting to separate the Washington and the, the machine of the state from the idea of America. And one is literally a cancer uh, against the other. And so I think to be a patriot, you actually need to hate Washington right now, not love it and stand behind it. And for a long time, I think the Democrats have relied on that patriotism or that general underlying love of America to translate into uh, tolerance of the deep state. And it's not anymore. And they are frustrated by it. And as they get more frustrated, they're just going to get angrier and angrier and tighten their grip and lash out worse and uh, this doesn't seem like it's going to go well. I don't know if I'm being too pessimistic. Lee, what do you think? Well, yeah, I was going to ask you that. I'm seeing some polling numbers that show the Democrats are making slight gains nationwide. But the polls are often easy to fake. And the numbers I'm seeing are within the margin of error. So I'm not sure. But a 2% gain in poll numbers, you see what I'm saying? That's not a big gain. Sure. But it's enough. It's enough for the media to go, Democrats are gaining in popularity. They might not be. It doesn't even matter. I mean, the, the real problem doesn't, it's not really even whether it's 
a majority of people are are going with Biden or not. I think what's happening is maybe it's a minority, maybe it's 30 percent. Let's say it's 30 percent of the country uh, that's waking up to this um, there. Once once you separate Washington from the idea and the ideal of America, uh, once you separate those, you your resistance solidifies. And so we might just be ending up with this like large, maybe a minority, but a large minority who are just never going to accept uh, what has happened to America. And they're going to continue to fight against Washington and the deep state. And that's not something that I think America has had to face, like a large plurality of people uh, actually actively opposed uh, to the deep state. And that's what scares me. It doesn't it doesn't really matter if, if they can't win in a vote. Uh, that doesn't make the problem go away. In fact, that might make it worse. Now, also, his attack was on extremism. And he used that word frequently, making himself out to be a mainstream person, a mild person. But the Democrats, it seems to me, have really adopted a very extreme techno- uh, position on the woke issues. Do you think the Democrats are an example of a mainstream political party when it comes to the issues of wokeism, Carter? Uh, well, obviously, I think the the wokeism, the, the control behind the Democratic Party is not mainstream. Probably a lot of mainstream Democrats aren't that radical. Uh, they just don't realize what's going on. That's been my experience about both Republicans and Democrats. But, I mean, you make a really good point. If you just rewind a little bit, you and I are old enough to, to have voted and, and remember the Clinton years. I remember thinking Clinton was was so far left and so horrible. But now I look back at Clinton and I think, you know, if he were to say the things that he said then and do the things that he did then, he would be castigated as a right wing extremist. Uh, So the fact is the the politics, the Overton window in this country and the general accepted political discourse has moved radically, radically to the left. Um, So and I don't I don't know convinced that the population has moved with it. I'm not convinced either. And I'm convinced that the Democrat strategy is to lie about the agenda. But occasionally, like we saw that when the Supreme Court nomination, she was asked, I think, was a woman. That's extreme position to not know what a woman is. That seems pretty extreme. Carter? Yeah. I mean, obviously, uh, she's being tepid a little bit, right? Because she, obviously there's a legal definition for a woman, so she could be able to answer it, but she doesn't want to, what happened there, I see that as her not wanting to anger the radical elements of, uh, of the Democratic Party. And the radical elements are actually in control in many ways. So this was, this was her trying to say, well, I don't, I don't want to make them upset. Uh, Clearly, even just 10 years ago, it would have been pretty easy for a Democrat to define what a woman is. I mean, women's issue, it's weird because rightly within within a few months after that scene that we all talked about, within just a few months, suddenly the same people are talking about women's rights issues because of the Dobbs decision. And uh, we're allowed to use that word, but we're not allowed to ask what it means, apparently. So, um, yeah, I I agree. It's it's a little bit it's a little bit bizarre and scary. And on things like transgender, let me be specific. The issue of children getting surgery, and they call it gender-affirming surgery. I would say the Democrats 
have taken an extreme position, which is that's perfectly acceptable. But what's not acceptable is even to discuss it. The Democrats aren't speaking out. It's one thing if they say, we take this position, but obviously some will disagree. They make people out to be, if they disagree with a 13-year-old girl getting a double mastectomy, that is an example of hate speech, they say. Have you noticed that, Carter? Absolutely. And, Lee, it's also a great example of how, you know, often often the left projects. So what they're accusing you of is something they're doing. Uh, And I would say this is a great example. Uh, It's anti-science. I mean, even the UK is shutting down the Tavistock Gender Treatment Center because they did a study and realized this is child abuse. This is literal child abuse. There is no science behind this. It is entirely experimental, uh, and it has horrific, horrific consequences for these young girls especially, but also young boys, but many of them are young girls, uh, who, who get shuffled in to uh, irreversible surgeries and treatments that, that cause lasting harm without really any reasonable vetting of whether any of this is really necessary. And it's, you know, for the left runs around all the time and says, trust the science, trust the science. But of course, this is the most, one of the most anti-scientific and frankly barbaric positions to take. And they do it without a, so much as, uh, as, uh, as blinking. They just, it's just, they think this is just fine and you're the crazy person. So uh, if that's not extreme, I don't know what is, Lee. And have you actually heard anyone defend that position? Because I haven't. What I hear is people criticize that position, but I've not heard a mainstream Democrat come out and explain why they think that's a good position. They just call their opponents haters and imply it. But have you heard any mainstream Democrat come out and explain why 13-year-olds Getting, getting double mastectomies is, in fact, a good position. Have you heard any Democrat defend it? No, because I think, of course, they can't in in they can't do that in concrete terms because it would horrify their voters. Uh, so the only thing that they can do, which is, you know, which was chock full of this kind of stuff in Biden's speech. The only thing they can do is use abstract terms that are that are ambiguous that are unclear, not well-defined, and and use some cliches and some bromides and some fear language and say things like, well, we care about these poor trans kids and they need gender affirm. We need to be gender affirming and it's, you know, hateful. And they might cite, they might cite some statistics about trans kids committing suicide. Of course, they don't differentiate uh, between uh, <laughs> whether they're committing suicide before or afterwards, or they're not talking, you know, they never talk about the causes. They just cite some very vague statistics to kind of to say that, oh, this is a problem. And if we really love them and are concerned about them, uh, we need to be doing this. And they also usually uh, they usually conflate something as relatively benign, even though I'm not in support of it, as letting someone use different pronouns or changing their name or whatever and, and letting them dress a certain way. Uh, I think you know, personally, I think that's also psychologically damaging and, and should be treated with some therapy. But uh, they conflate that with what you're talking about, permanent sterilization and irreversible damage. And they just kind of 
with one big broad stroke, say the whole thing is about supporting trans kids. And that's the extent of the argument. And of course, if if the level of detail and, and concretization that you go in is I want to support trans kids, well, everyone's going to clap. Everyone wants to support kids no matter what their status is. So uh, but that, you know, that's about as detailed as they get. And I think a number of Democrats, I'm talking about Democrat voters who hate Trump. Democrats, I believe a lot of them think the right wing is making up those stories. I don't think they actually think they're true. Does it make sense? I I, I have a maybe I'm a little bit more uh, cynical, Lee, but I think they suspect the stories are true and intentionally suppress the the psychological urge to look any deeper. I think they're just evading. They don't want to know that the stories are true because if the stories are true, they need to change their position. And when they change their position, they'll be attacked by the mob. So they just don't want to know. Uh, they don't want they don't want to know about those stories. But on the medical treatment, there's a leftist argument to be made about it, which is it's being done. Why the surgery is being supported? The leftist argument could be that it's about money. It's about doctors making money and it's exploitation for the purposes of making profit. Does it make sense, Carter? Uh, yeah, but I think that's more of an old school lefty argument, right? Because the old school lefties would would use more of a an anti-capitalist or communist uh, perspective where they you just hate on big companies for profit. And they still use that language when it's uh, convenient for them. But you'll notice in the past few years, especially uh, with the George George Floyd stuff and then and then COVID stuff. The left has been become pretty cozy with billion dollar corporations, right? People are getting Pfizer tattoos and they love Amazon for their Black Lives Matter banner on their page. And every every corporate logo is in rainbow colors in June. So I, I think the the traditional left that you and I grew up with, which is much more Marxist and class focused uh, and and hating uh, wealth and hating uh, profit. You know, they're, they're still there and they'll use those arguments when they need to. But predominantly, uh, predominantly, they've become more fascist. And I mean that in a more classical fascist sense where they they are fine with private companies existing so long as they are uh, under the thumb and watchful eye of the large apparatus of the administrative state, which the left intends to and does indeed control. Now, do you think are, that they're going to let Trump run? In 2024, and I mean literally, will they do something, arrest him or indict him or, you know, cite some constitutional thing that keeps Donald Trump from running? Do you think the Democrats are going to let allow Trump to run in 2024? What's your prediction? I do not. Uh, I do not think they're going to allow him to run. And uh, and I think they're going to end up making a little bit of a martyr out of him. I mean, you're probably in my camp. I don't want to speak for you, Lee, but, you know, I there's a lot I liked about Trump in terms of him being a bull in the China shop. I know he's a pragmatist. I, I never really had huge high hopes for him, but I I lost interest in Trump. Uh, I, he didn't fulfill promises that I wanted. I wasn't very supportive of him uh, towards the end. I don't really care about him. But now I'm in this position of having to uh Almost defend him. I mean, not completely, but almost defend him, or at least uh, criticize the people going after him because they're they're so egregious. I mean, if they had just let go of this whole thing and ignored Trump uh, after 2020, no one would care. Trump wouldn't be in the news. He would have lost uh, a lot of support. We would have moved on. But they're keeping him 
top of mind, and they're turning him into someone to rally behind simply because uh, they're exposing their uh, authoritarian nature in their treatment of him, and they're exposing how evil the deep state is. And so people, you know, people are like, well, you know, I don't like Trump, but man, this FBI really is horrible. Maybe, maybe we do need to rally behind Trump again. So it's odd. I think they're helping him quite a lot, but I don't, I do think they're going to make a move or at least attempt, attempt to not allow him to run at all because they are, I think, irrationally, but very scared of him. And then if DeSantis is the candidate, they create an election issue, which is if, if they don't let Trump run and DeSantis is the nominee, I think DeSantis then comes out saying he will pardon Trump. And that becomes a benefit to electing Ron DeSantis because he gets to articulately make all the points you're making about the FBI and so on. Carter? Yeah, I don't think he, I don't think it would be a good, I mean, I'm not a strategist, but I don't think it would be good for him to, to outright say he's going to pardon Trump, but I don't think he has to. He could just say what what is being done to Trump is wrong and Trump could uh, campaign for him. And that's enough. And, you know, people might understand that he'll, he'll probably pardon Trump, but he doesn't even have to say that. I think he just becomes if Trump supports him. Um, yeah, it 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 does help him because then he's allowed he'll, he'll get all the Trump support because he'll be a proxy for the Trump voters uh, and he'll get support from people who are less inclined to vote for Trump, but are, but lean, I don't even want to say lean to the right, lean Republican. Republicans are like mildly left right now. I don't know, at least, it's, it's, you know, if my political compass was set in the eighties, the Republicans are kind of a little bit on the left. There's no one really on the right uh, other than a few, a few Republicans, maybe DeSantis is one of them, but there's not a lot. So let me say this, what will happen is if DeSantis is the nominee, some reporters on CNN at a news conference will say to him, are you going to pardon Donald Trump? And then he can not answer it. He can be a weasel about it. And you go, well, we'll see. I'm not going to answer hypothetical. But then everyone will know what he's thinking. And I think he's better when, when he's asked the question directly, will you pardon Trump? I think his best move is to say, well, I will. And here's why. I think the FBI has gotten out of control. And I'm not going to get into the issues. You know, everyone could be indicted for Because I think this is the point with Trump. Anyone can be indicted any day. If people want to indict you or I or anybody listening, the FBI could find charges to do it. And everyone knows about the justice system. So if he says, I don't like the fact that they targeted him in a political fashion. I think that's just, what do you think you should do if DeSantis is asked directly about pardoning Trump? Because I don't think there's any doubt he will be. Carter? That's a good point. I mean, like I said, I'm not a political strategist, so maybe maybe he should just say it right out. I mean, my guess is, uh, I mean, the way I would respond, and but I would mean this sincerely, this wouldn't be a bypass. I would say, look, I, I'm I'm really concerned about what's happened. Uh, I'm very suspicious about the legality and morality of what's happened. And uh, I will absolutely consider it. I'll be looking into the details. There's probably details that I'm not privy to because I don't have access yet. Uh, and so if I learn something uh, that might change my mind, but I'm abs- it's absolutely something I'm going to investigate and consider. Right. That's that's probably 
where I'd come down on that. But, you know, to your point, Lee, I, you know, I think what there's a, someone wrote, I think there's a book about this. There's, I think you, the average person commits like six felonies a day or something ridiculous. I mean, the, your, your point is, is a hundred percent accurate. If they want to go after someone, they, they can, they can justify it in whatever way they want. I mean, most of us are felons, like I said, six times a day. Uh, and that means that we're, it's, it's men who are in charge, not rules. We're out of time for today and for the week. We'll be back Tuesday. But you have a career as a political strategist. Your answer was great. Carl Aaron, thanks so much for joining us. And thanks for Scott Ritter for making us smarter about Ukraine. We'll be back on Tuesday on the best damn radio show in the world. This is The Backstory.